What is up, everybody? Welcome to episode five of the Inside D3 show. I'm your host, Morgan Cheatham. Thank you guys again for joining us. Uh, be sure to follow us on our website at InsideD3.com. Our Twitter and Instagram is at D3Inside. Facebook is Inside D3. YouTube, Inside D3 Athletics. And then all of our streaming platforms, just search the Inside D3 show and you can listen to all of our podcasts from there. So I want to introduce our guest today. We are joined by Dan Dusher, who is the Vice President of Division Three. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dan. How are you? Uh, great to be here, Morgan. I'm great. I uh, hope you're doing well as well. It's a real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. So um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, just your history in NCAA first. So, you know, first off, how long have you been with the NCAA? And then my next question after that is, you know, what other positions have you had in the past on the national level? Yeah, I've been with the NCAA almost 34 years. That puts me pretty much at the top of the seniority list um, in our office. Um, I started in 1986, uh, spent the first five years in what's now called the AMA staff. Back then it was called Legislative Services. So the staff department that interprets legislation, drafts legislation, then goes out and explains to folks what, what, how the rules work. Uh, I was in a, uh, 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 assistant, uh, associate director role there for five years. Then the next five years I was in a director role. And then in 1996, when the NCAA just completed the, the creation of its current governance structure, um, they created three divisional VP positions. Um, I had been doing some, a lot of support for D3 committees during those last few years and then was asked if I would be interested in, um, taking over uh, and filling the, the new D3 uh, VP slot. And it was like somebody knocking on your door and saying, hey, of all the things you like doing, how'd you like to do this full time from here on out? So very fortunate uh, to be in the right place at the right time throughout my career. And that was definitely one of those instances. Yeah, sounds like the perfect situation for sure. Um, so talk a little bit about, you know, your journey before you made it to the NCAA, you know, what other you know, work experience did you have? Uh, what schools did you go to? And also what other playing experience did you have? If you had any? Sure. Yeah. I, you know, um, I'm a, I'm ashamed, but I have to be honest and say I was never much of an athlete. Um, I, I, God didn't just bless me with, with much athletic ability. So, you know, beyond some, beyond some pretty bad uh, junior high athletics, um, I mostly worked in high school. I grew up in Biddeford, Maine, which okay. is Southern Maine, about 90 miles north of Boston. It's a mill town. Um, Mo worked mostly during high school with my free time, uh, was uh, lucky enough to go to Notre Dame for my undergraduate uh, work and uh, majored in, in government political science. Um, was really interested in administrative work, uh, but also interested in law school. Um, I grew up during the I was a junior high kid during the Watergate era. So for me, that, that really made an impression on me, especially uh, Bill Cohen, who was a representative at that time, ended up being a U.S. senator and then ultimately was a, was a, a Teddy Award winner by the NCAA, Bowdoin College grad, made a real impression on me about uh, about the law and government. And so decided when I left Notre Dame, I'd like to uh, go to law school. Uh, my older sister had uh, gone to uh, the master's degree at University of Kansas in Lawrence. Lawrence is a great college town. South Bend, very different. Um, you know, Lawrence, KU, large public school, Notre Dame, smaller, private. 
so it was a good change of pace for me. And they had a great joint degree program in law and public administration. KU's graduated more uh, city managers in their MPA program than any other school in the country. So to me, that was a perfect opportunity. Went to KU, had uh, had uh, three great years, three and a half great years in Lawrence. Um, got my law degree. I'd always felt like I wanted to go back to Maine um, and, and try to practice the law. And I did it. I did it for about two years. Uh, also worked on a congressional campaign during that time. But uh, after practicing law um, for that period of time, realized um, I probably should, I wanted to do something else with my life. Um, and I was really interested in that um, administrative side of the equation. Uh, my wife now, girlfriend back then, uh, we had met in law school she, a year behind me. She was uh, practicing in KC, um, had some additional graduate uh, program work to do, uh, and decided for various reasons to move back to Kansas City. NCA was in Kansas City at the time, and I was really fortunate enough to, uh, to get an interview and, and then to get hired uh, with the NCAA um, after I moved back in 1986. So uh, I've been with them um, other than that brief uh, period of, of, of the legal practice. I've been with them almost my entire career. Ah, okay. So um, what's an average day like for you, you know, working at that level? Um, you know, what's, what's a <laughs> If there's an average day, you know, what's what's some of the things that you do on a regular basis? Yeah, I, it's hard to not answer that question, given the, the current um, setting, because right now my day consists of a whole lot of video conferences yeah. um, <laughs> prior to prior to COVID. Um, a lot of meetings um, in person or, you know, or uh, on the phone. Um, but you spend a lot of time uh, working with really two different groups. One are folks within the national office. Um, to help try to get done what um, you, you're trying to get done from a Division three perspective. Uh, and then the other group would be folks from the membership, from different constituent groups, ADs, commissioners, faculty reps, uh, SWAs, what have you, student athletes. But you, you spend a lot of time um, talking to other folks. And ultimately what I do, I'm lead support for the president's council, lead support for the management council, along with Louise McCleary, who's managing director D3. And then we work with all the other staff that support the other committees within division three. The governing staff itself is pretty small. We only have about, uh, about six folks who are full time. Um, what we had then have to do is work with all the other folks within the national office who support all the other committees and all, all the other processes that uh, affect Division Three. So, for example, Liz Susha, who's managing director for championships, who oversees D3 championships. She's not part of the governance staff. She's part of the championship staff. Yet, if we want to get championships done, we have to work together. Um, Jeff Myers, who's managing director in AMA. Um, the AMA is not part of our staff, but yet we work closely with AMA because on a legislative and interpretive side, it's crucial. So there are lots of folks, Eric Hartung in research, um, another example, lots of folks that we have to work closely with uh, in order to get done what we need to get done internally. Um, but in supporting the President's and Management Council, those are the lead committees within the governance structure. We have about 30 committees overall within the governance structure. So your responsibility with the President's and Management Council is basically the higher level major policy initiatives, higher level legislative initiatives, the budget, the strategic plan. Um, those are responsibilities um, 
of the, of the two councils, and then you have to work with the other folks who support the other committees um, to be sure that you're implementing things that are consistent with um, the, uh, what the policies and, and plans that you've established, the, the budget you've created um, at the council level. Okay. So, um, you know, you kind of talked a little bit about, you know, working with a lot of different councils and committees. Um, you know, obviously, NCAA right. is made up of a lot of those. Um, talk a little bit about that structure and then also, you know, how do you guys collab and how does that work in terms of collaborating with ideas and making decisions? Yeah, it's a great question because I don't think a lot of folks understand how the association works. I think the default assumption um, by a lot of people is NCA staff um, make all the decisions. That's really not the case at all. One of the things I like most about the association is that we are a membership association. Um, we're very democratic in the sense that um, we have a very large committee structure. Those committees are comprised of representatives from NCA member schools and conferences. So when I mention those 30 committees that are in Division Three. Uh, those committees are made up of various represent representatives from throughout Division Three. Um, a lot of the committees have different representational requirements to ensure the broad base of, of viewpoints and representation. So a lot of committees will, will earmark folks by position. So you, you need X number of presidents or X number of ADs or faculty reps. Um, diversity. Uh, we try to ensure that the committees have uh, uh, appropriate diversity in terms of gender and ethnicity. Geographic representation, you have to have folks from, from different areas of, uh, within the membership, again, to be sure that, that all different viewpoints are heard. To me, that's absolutely the, 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 the backbone, the bedrock, the strength of the association is that we decide things through a committee structure that's representative. Uh, you know, I'm really happy to say our student athletes are very active within that, that structure as well. We have a student athlete advisory committee, obviously, but then we have student athletes who serve on various other committees, including our management council. We have two, two, two student athletes that have full voting privileges. Um, so sometimes um, the NCAA can be viewed as a large bureaucracy because a large committee structure doesn't necessarily move quickly. But the trade-off is that that large committee structure, when it handles issues, handles them deliberately, handles them in a way that includes various viewpoints. And in my opinion, ultimately, um, that, that benefits the, the output um, within uh, the governance structure and, and the legislative uh, process as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, you know, when I was with SEC, even just seeing how you guys were able to, you know, listen to different student athletes' voices. Definitely great to see that. And I had no idea that even a couple of them had voting privileges as well. So I think that's awesome. It's a great step. So you know, it's really, uh, it's something I'm really proud of in Division Three. We were the first division to do that back when I, I mentioned the, the creation of the current governance structure back about 25 years ago. D D3 uh, instituted, you know, student athletes on the management council back then. There were some skeptics about whether student athletes would be able to fulfill that responsibility. And it's, in hindsight, I think it's one of the best things that, that we've done. And now you see over time, um, our colleagues in Division One and Division Two have, have made similar, similar changes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, obviously, you know, Division Three doesn't offer, you know, athletic related financial aids and scholarships and things like that. And that's one of those things that, um, 
you know, it's very unique to Division Three. But what other right. aspects of Division Three do you think are very unique? You know, a um, couple things related to uh, the Division Three student athlete experience that are unique. Uh, you know, one of them is, I think, a reflection of the fact that we don't award athletic scholarships because we don't. Um, the, the, the time demands that come with an athletic scholarship can be significant. Um, Division three student athletes still have a chance to participate in, in, in very competitive athletics and have that athletic experience, but the time demands are different. And so student athletes in Division three can and do, our data tells us, do have realistic opportunities for significant experiences in the classroom, our, our graduation rates uh, exceed those of, um, of uh, uh, basically of, of the student body in general. Time to spend um, uh, in co-curricular, extracurricular activities, where the highest percentage of student athletes who study abroad, highest percentage of student athletes who participate in internships and externships. Community service, like our partnership with Special Olympics, the, the idea that a student athlete in D3 does have an opportunity to participate in a very robust athletics program, but has additional time to do the kinds of activities and experiences that really contribute to a full educational experience beyond the classroom, that's a real strength of, of, division, uh, of division three. No, no question uh, in my mind about that. So that's part of what makes us unique. Another thing that makes us unique is the percentage of participation. Uh, it's a typical division three school. It looks different than the other divisions. Um, it's a, you know, average enrollment of uh, somewhere around 2,200. Um, though that are student athletes is somewhere around 25%. And that includes our 20% of schools that are public who have larger enrollment. If you take out the larger enrollment schools out of that um, discussion, you're probably pushing around 30% of, of uh, the typical private D3 school um, that, uh, on which students are student athletes. That's remarkable. That, that percentage of student participation in athletics is far bigger than any other of the divisions. And what it means is student athletes in D3 are much more, reflects the fact that student athletes in D3 are much more like other students. Um, they, are, they look like other students coming in the door academically. They perform like other students. They succeed like other students. They're expected to be treated like other students, uh, all things being equal whenever you can. So I think that's unique if that's the kind of experience you're looking for as a perspective. That's the kind of value of college. Um, I think in Division Three, you can point to that broad base of educational opportunities, both in the classroom, outside of the classroom, in the community, study abroad, those kinds of things um, that can emphasize the fact that a D3 student athlete, when he or she graduates, is has experience and is prepared to to go on to the, to the next step of their lives with that truly broad base of educational opportunities um, beyond what happens on the playing field or in the classroom. Absolutely. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, name image likeness. Um, just for people that don't know, explain that for us and then also explain to us, you know, how it impacts 
institutions as well as you know conferences and then student athletes as well? Sure. Um, it's a complicated issue, um, no doubt. I like to think of it in the following context. It really focuses on the ability of student athletes to use their name, image, or likeness to generate income. So in a sense, I like to look at it as in the employment context. It's like student athletes wanting to pursue a job. The focus of that particular job is using their name, image, and likeness to generate revenue. The, 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 a couple key things to keep in mind, though. Number one, we're talking about this independent of the institution. So there are opportunities for student athletes to use their name, image, and likeness, but they're not opportunities that are created by the institution. They're opportunities independent of the institution, just like you go out and find a job independent of the institution. Um, the other thing that's revolutionary in this discussion is historically student athletes in all three divisions have been very limited in their ability to go off and do things uh, in the public sphere while also using their student athlete identity in that effort. So the traditional D3 approach has been you can do a video, you can do a blog, um, you can go off and, and maybe be a model, but you can't identify yourself as a student athlete as part of that, act, of that activity. What we're talking about here for all three divisions, but in particular in division three, where I'm a little more knowledgeable, what we're talking about here is allowing student athletes to do those things and also include in those efforts the fact that they are a student athlete. That would be a fundamental change um, from, the, from the current status quo. All right, gotcha. So our last question before you get out of here, um, you know, we always ask people why D3. You know, it seems like it's like a, a trending kind of question for everybody. You know, we ask the student athletes and things like that. But with you in such a large role with the Nationals, um, you know, the NCAA, I want to talk a little bit about what your reasoning was behind choosing Division Three. I think Division Three represents uh, a really special model of how athletics can be integrated into higher education. All three divisions try to do that, um, but Division Three does it a little bit differently. Uh, and for me, it's a division that focuses on trying to integrate as much as possible athletics into the overall educational experience. Sometimes folks will talk about a balance between athletics and academics. In Division three, we're really talking about an integration of athletics into academics. The other point that I I'd like to make when I talk about why Division three is Division three works. And you question that statement, look at our membership. We're the largest division. We have about 40% of the NCAA's member schools. We have about 40% of the NCAA's student athletes. That's not an accident. That's because the Division Three model works. Our member schools have found that it best accomplishes what we want out of an athletic experience. It's that robust education um, that participation in athletics provides and the way in which it supports the overall education of, of the campus and, and conference communities. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that makes it 
very unique, and I think that's one of the places that drives a lot of people home in terms of, you know, making that decision. So, Dan, I want to thank you again for coming on, taking some time to talk with us today. Uh, we definitely appreciate it, and, uh, you know, we wish you the best of luck during these times. We hope you stay safe. Thank you so much, Morgan. Same to you. Congratulations on, on what you're doing, and, and thanks for your support of, of Division Three. Appreciate the time today. Absolutely. Thank you. So that does it for another episode of the Inside D3 show. Once again, I'm Morgan Cheatham. Be sure to follow us on our website, follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and then all of our streaming platforms. Once again, this is the Inside D3 show, and we are signing off. Welcome back to the Inside D3 show. My name is Sam Vibrock, and I'm here to bring you another edition of the Inside D3 mascot of the week. Last week, I did the NYU Violets. This week, I'm going to do something a little different and shift to the other coast, the West Coast, and do the Pacific University and Oregon boxers. Now, when you think of a boxer, you think it's a dog. Well, you're wrong when it comes to Pacific University and Oregon. The boxer they portray is a part dog, part dragon idol, which is like the good luck statues found outside the homes in China for good luck. It was a 60-pound bronze statue that was brought back in 1898 by Reverend Joseph Walker. It was gifted to the university by his mother. The statue quickly became a covenant prize, and it was stolen between clubs, fraternities, and classes. This was known as the boxer tosses. Um, it always was large and it lasted hours and hours on end. The Pacific University in Oregon's campus newspaper coined the term boxer in 1908 as a nod to the Boxer Rebellion, which had a huge impact in China during this time. Prior to that, the statue had known as the college spirit. The boxers became the official athletic nickname in 1968 after a student body vote. The Pacific University and Oregon's athletic teams have been known as the Badgers before then. The original uh, boxer statue disappeared from campus in the early 1970s. Its whereabouts were unknown in trials, and trials by interested alums to find the statue have gone cold. The current boxer statue was recasted in 1982 by funds raised by the students. The, well, the boxer toss in, in, the 19, in the 1800s were appropriate, now they're not. It was actually outlawed in the 1990s because of the violent nature of it. But they now use it as a spirit competition uh, that was, that's held between campus groups, and the winning group would earn possession of the boxer for the year. So a boxer is just, it's not a dog, it's a good luck symbol that is part dog, part dragon in the Chinese culture. And it gives the nod to the Boxer Rebellion, which was really big during the early part of the 20th century. Tune in next week as I spotlight a new college mas D3 college mascot. My name is Sam Vibrock, reporting for Inside D3.